I invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus 21. With the Bible in front of you there, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 32 this morning, a little bit larger portion of God's Word. Part of this book of the covenant that God gives to His people through Moses. And just a reminder of what this book of the covenant is. This is the universal, absolute moral law of God applied to specific situations, specific uh, context. These are some examples of how the people were to approach and adjudicate certain situations that they were going to face. And so uh, the context of these case laws is unique to Israel living in the ancient Near East, but we find that uh, the principles can be applied, should be applied in the life of the church uh, and community at large. So the people of Israel have been encamped around Mount Sinai, and uh, they're not on the mountaintop. It's Moses who has gone up the mountain. But I think it's fair to say that the people of Israel have had this mountaintop experience. Maybe Moses has the ultimate mountaintop experience. But the people of Israel have this front row seat to the power and the majesty of the Lord. Um, I love mountaintop experiences, as I expect that you all would. I mean, these are times that are very encouraging and energizing and replenishing in our love for the Lord and our, our zeal and, and desire to serve Him. But let's be honest, most of life is not spent at the mountain, on the mountaintop. Um, most of our living is in the cars, in the kitchen, in the living room, in the bedroom, in the office, classroom. Not terribly exciting most days. But when we get to the book of the covenant, it tells us that God is very, very interested in those times as well. That He, he cares about real life. He cares about, speaks into what is happening from day to day. That's why the principles that we take from these chapters are so powerful and applicable for us. What God values helps shape not just what we value, but the decisions that we make uh, as God's people. So not, an, not exhaustive here, but descriptive of what God values in our everyday lives. Let's jump in, Exodus 21, beginning at verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if, a man will full, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel... And one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money or property. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, 
but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So this is the true and enduring word of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this word, hard word for us to hear, wondering how you may think through this and apply this. And so, Lord, we lean into you, depend on you, and trust you uh, to work your word, to perform it. That you would speak to us now, speak to our hearts, that we might rightly understand and apply this word to us. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some laws that are very... Uh, they're still on the books in some states um, that may sound a little strange to us, portions of law that are no longer reinforced or even referenced unless you're preaching from the case laws in the Old Testament. Um, so within the state limits of Arkansas, apparently it's illegal to mispronounce the name of Arkansas. Uh, in Alabama, it is illegal to wear a, mus- or a fake mustache, but only if it induces laughter. It's on the books. Uh, Nebraska, uh, I assume this is to protect the, the, the beauty salon industry, but it's illegal for a mother uh, to give her daughter a perm without a license. Arizona, you can spend up to 25 years in jail for cutting down a cactus. Um, and in Washington, you can be fined or arrested for harassing Bigfoot. These are, on, these are laws. So they, they tell us some things about a society, what a society values and probably some unique, thing, unique history about uh, that place. But these values shift over time, which I hope we see as we hear strange laws like this. So because of our separation from Israel in the Old Testament, the cultural differences that exist, you know, some of this case law that we hear can sound very strange to us. Circumstances given and then the penalty is prescribed. So this, the circumstances may be similar to our own. They may not. The penalties may differ somewhat, but that's the principles that endure. We need to remember that our God is unchanging. What He values does not change. It never gets old or passes into that funny laws that no one really cares about anymore category. This is, this is God's Word that shapes the the lives and relationships, the transactions of His people uh, for their good, for their flourishing, 
uh, in covenant with him. So there are three values that seem to emerge from these verses that we've read, and that's how I want to approach uh, this listing of case laws. The underlying value and then the principle derived from that. We see the value of life, value of authority, and the value of justice. So look at the case law, principle under each. Life, authority, and justice. And in verses 12 through 14, verse 16, again in 28, we see the great value that God places on human life, on all human life. If murder is premeditated, is calculated, then it demands the life of the murderer. And here we find no distinction between class of people, status, gender, age. Taking a life, whether it's intentional or unintentional, is not to be tolerated uh, among God's chosen people. In the case of an accident, uh, maybe like a friendly fire incident, our understanding of that, the one by whom another was killed had a place to, uh, to go, to be protected from the family of the one who died. Uh, that looks ahead to the cities of, of refuge that God would describe in Numbers 35, a place to to live until proper justice uh, could be administered. But the law is intended to curb vengeance. That inclination that, that people have, not just people then, people now like us have, to take matters into our own hands. Blood vengeance. Blood vengeance says, you know, I'm not really concerned about motivation. Uh, I've lost a family member, and so you're going to lose a family member. Sort of this, this unwritten code of vengeance. And we, we still see that practiced in the world today. In many uh, Arab nations particularly. It's why we see entire families or villages that are slowly eradicated because of these blood feuds now that continue. Uh, not so among Israel. There's to be no blood vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. He is the one who repays. Read in Deuteronomy 32. He's the Creator. All people belong to Him and are made in His image. So there will be justice. It shows us that God really cares about the motivation behind the death. For those who take life purposefully and willfully, there's no place to run. Not even to the altar. If you can picture this, someone has, has murdered someone and then they, they run to the altar. They run to the church. As if somehow closing that gap between you know, the place of God's presence it would somehow wipe away their crime. The Lord says, no, the issue here isn't, isn't one of space, it's one of, one of relationship. The life is intentionally taken, that life is demanded because it belongs to God. I wonder if you were surprised at all by verse 16. <laughs> Kidnapping is in the same category. Forcefully remove someone from their home or from their family. Again, regardless of gender, age, status, that's, that's considered a capital crime. Again, this, this wouldn't really apply to you know, situations following a war. But among God's people, if one is caught kidnapping or in the process of trafficking, it's serious enough to warrant uh, death. Verse 28 reinforces the value of life. The value of people over property, like animals. If an animal kills a person, that animal is lost. It's killed and there's no benefit from the animal. It wasn't eaten for food. 
Its hide wasn't, wasn't used, but the life of the owner was spared. God values life, places a great value on all human life. No person is more important or inherently more valuable than another before God. And every person, every person is more valuable than property. Uh, you see the value of God's image bearers in the sixth commandment. But this is not something that's new to Sinai. The value of God's divine imprint upon human beings has always been there. After Noah and his family are spared, God renews his covenant with him, which includes his care for humanity. He's going to exact punishment for the shedding of blood. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's the the biblical argument for life. The protection of life from the womb all the way to the tomb. Made in God's own image. So to intentionally destroy human life is to destroy God's God's word. It's an attack against God himself. Uh, I read something that pictures this, and literally in a picture, um, the gallery, a national gallery in Ireland, had one of Claude Monet's original paintings on display, uh, valued at a cool $10 million. And uh, one afternoon, another uh, man by the name of Andrew Shannon, who is himself an artist, a rather frustrated artist, walked into this gallery, walked straight up to the Monet painting, and punched a hole right through it. I don't know what happened to him after that, but it took a year and a half, I guess, to restore this, this painting. Uh, but it's not, not just destroying a beautiful painting, but it, I mean, that's slamming the artist. It's an attack on Monet and the work of, of his hands. To take the life of a human being, which can be an active or passive event, is to mock the Creator, the work of God's hand. So I think we need to address uh, capital punishment, their death penalty, uh, when considering this principle. Um, I know it sounds strange, maybe even barbaric to our modern ears a little bit, but capital punishment demands a high view of life. A society that truly values life. Plenty of arguments out there against the death penalty, and they, they should be heard, but none of them are really the biblical argument. I know that the Catholic position, argument of Pope's past and present, is that the death penalty is immoral because it's administered unjustly. And often, you know, that this actually produces a, a culture of death. And I don't think anyone would disagree that it has been administered unjustly and that this is horrendous, this grieves the heart of God. Should not be. But it doesn't eliminate the punishment designed to protect life and guard against some sort of vigilante law among the people. We don't execute every murderer. We know that. We know uh, Cain, the first murderer in Genesis 4, is spared by God. But the life belongs to God. And what we're going to hear, you know, it's not cost effective. It doesn't deter crime, which may actually be so. The Bible never says that it will do those things. The Bible's appeal is to the image of God in man. That is what makes every human life sacred. 
every human life. So if we refuse to believe that, that human beings are made in the image of God, again, this is not just some data comparison that says, no, I, I don't buy it. You know, the blob of mass in the womb, the blob of mass outside the womb, the blob of mass that somehow has grown and matured into me, nothing special or unique that, that demands protection. Okay, that, that is an intentional moral suppression that fights against reality. The heart that's enslaved to sin suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The truth that we are not God as much as we try to be. The truth that people do not belong to each other as property. The truth that we do not decide who lives or dies in God's created order. This can be suppressed, but the truth doesn't go away. The vengeance of God who demands a reckoning for the life of man does not go away. As we consider the landscape in our land, the blindness among so many of our own lawmakers, it, I mean, it should make us, our hair stand on end a little bit. Um, but this principle that God values all human life, that's never going to go away. It will not be completely suppressed. And this, this should be a crack in the clouds for us. This should give us a little hope in this time and in this place. God's common Grace to His image bearers includes some ability, however small it may be, to perceive and reason. Because God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. No matter how ruined the, our, our image of Him may be, there will always remain this seed of understanding that we are unique from all the other creatures. That we've been made to honor and give ourselves to one greater than ourselves. So as more and more data becomes available, as more and more imaging becomes available of life in the womb, and we do trust that God in His common grace, that, that more would acknowledge human life for what it is. Even if the being made in the image of God is not part of their vocabulary, that the evidence is so overwhelming that this thing is not a thing. It's a human being. It should be protected and cared for just like you would want to be protected or cared for. So let's pray. Let's continue to pray that eyes would be open to the reality of God's design that more and more would, would have the eyes of their hearts opened, turn in faith to the Creator. So the value of, of human life. Um, well, let's move now to the value of authority. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Mom or dad doesn't have to die in this case. If they do, then, then the laws that we've just looked at would apply. So whether they die or not, an attempt to, to kill them or, or enough force that would have killed them is met with the death penalty. In verse 17, it goes even further. That, that cursing or dishonoring parents is a capital offense. Now this does not have the, you know, the temper tantrums, the shouts of your kids in mind. That's not what this is. Um, this is 
what's in view here in this cursing language is adult children who are either saying or doing something that is, is disowning their parents. Basically discarding the, the care that they are entitled to, should be uh, provided for them. And Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Mark 7, again Matthew 15. He says that they have rejected the commandment of God. The fifth command, honor father and mother. And the more specific details, that by not providing for their parents, looking to avoid their obligations to them, they're making void the word of God for their own traditions. The authority that God has entrusted to parents, their role within the family, uh, is to be valued. And we see this authority given to masters, the bosses, who may see fit to discipline those in service to them. But it can't be too harsh, which some of these other laws speak to. The Apostle Paul includes disobedience to parents among the list of evils that the unrighteous approve of and celebrate in Romans chapter 1. So God places great value on, on these authority structures, specifically the role and authority of parents. And I think about applying this principle, it really has me thinking about our homes. Faithfulness to God, obedience to His laws, a desire to, to pursue the truth according to His Word, that is formed and nurtured within our homes, among parents and children. It's going to be reinforced and complemented in other places, but it's in our homes that, that we and our children learn to love, learn to serve. Our homes are really a laboratory for this where submission to authority takes root, where it's practiced. Parents submitting to the authority of God. Children to parents and thus to God. Um, As we see this erosion, it will just permeate everything else in a society. I mentioned a moment ago uh, that masters might discipline their servants. We see this use of the rod in verse 20. The implication here is that that physical punishment is there that's not intended to kill. If it does kill, then the slave could be avenged. It's considered murder. Which, again, is an entirely unique thing to Israel. Now, slaves had no rights out, out, you know, among the pagan nations. You know, if a man gets ramped up and he kills a slave, oh well, it was his property. But not so among God's people because of the value that's placed on human life. But it appears that physical discipline was still practiced. Um, So I want to just share a brief word here on corporal punishment. Um, Not capital punishment, corporal punishment. Um, Physical force in discipline. Uh, The book of the the covenant, the case laws uh, we find, do not do away uh, with this type of of action. Uh, Corporal punishment has been practiced. It's still widely uh, used around the world. Uh, it really as a form of, of discipline and correction. This is universal up until the very late 20th century in the Western world. Uh, where things like slapping or caning or spanking were considered to be abuse. Um, and when God's law is ignored... And the discipline is not understood and carried out with control and purpose to restore, then that is exactly what it turns into abuse or manipulation. 
And I can't begin to give all the, the nuances to this, but, but here's the point. Any argument to do away with all corporal punishment in the time of timeouts um, does not have historical grounding, to include biblical historical grounding. Um, the wisdom of the Proverbs uh, speaks into the need for godly discipline, which may, not necessarily must, may include corporal punishment. You can look at Proverbs um, 22, 23, 29. Uh, for some examples of that. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Maybe some good discussion uh, in your small groups uh, to follow that. Um, Something else we need to take uh, from this value of authority is that God is concerned with our morality in public, how we behave in public, not just in private. Um, Our behavior outside this place and in public should sync up with who we are as God's people. Children of, of the king, representatives of his family. Your personal piety matters, but your public morality matters just as much. Um, and we've all done this, making judgments of others. Others have made judgments of us based on something we've said or, or done. And saying, huh. You know, and that, that person claims to be a Christian. Interesting. I mean, you know, may... <laughs> don't know what their understanding of being a Christian means, but they sense perhaps a disconnect in what we, we say, say we are and, and believe and what it is uh, we're actually doing. Uh, again, I'm, I'm thinking of the very pious Pharisees here who ignore their responsibility to parents. Just a glaring disconnect in their morality. Um, one other thought before we look at the value of justice. It's so prominent here. I'm grateful to... Dr. Legan Duncan, who makes this point. Uh, To our ears, we read the penalty that's attached, uh, death for for dishonoring or attacking parents. It seems harsh. It seems disproportionate to the crime. And so, case laws like this, they remind us, they need to remind us Maybe we need to comprehend for the first time just how sinful our sin is. Open rebellion against the Creator God. When Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, we hear that, we read that, we even see that played out around us, but we have a very hard time believing it. We just don't believe that we're that bad. Or that sinful. And we compare ourselves to others. We see the flaws in others. Um, you go, well, you know, I'm, it's really okay. I, I don't do that. I haven't gone that far. And this underlying perception keeps us from believing the gospel. Either coming to Christ initially or from really growing in the gospel. So what do we do? We, we look to the cross and then, then we look to the cross again and again to show us what had to be done. What our sin deserves. What God has done in giving us His Son so that we could be forgiven from the death penalty of our sin. We have to keep going back. Keep looking at the cross. So let's look briefly at this last value. Value of justice, equal justice under the law. The underlying principle is that the punishment or compensation was proportionate to the crime. Verses 18 and 19, 
fight breaks out, someone injures somebody else, uh, who recovers a little while later, uh, if his, his or her injuries were serious enough to miss work, then the other was to provide compensation for that missed work. You know, there's, there's an underlying message here. If you're going to fight, there's a risk that goes with it. Kind of behind this law. Now, that didn't pay all damages assessed. This didn't provide a way for someone to get as much as possible from someone else. Um, you know, claim emotional or psychological damages, things like that. The compensation they missed while their body healed uh, was to be provided. Uh, so this equal justice really stands out in verses 22 through 24. Uh, notoriously difficult to interpret. But the options don't take away from the point. The punishment should fit the offense. An example of a pregnant woman being injured during a fight, that's the springboard for this principle of equal justice. If no harm is done, implying no harm to the woman or uh, the child that she carried, then there's a fine handed down by the husband. There is harm to the woman or child, and there's equal justice. Same is true in uh, 26 and 27, for a master who strikes his slaves and causes permanent harm. Okay? This, was, this was referred to as the Italian law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. The punishment should match the offense. Now with the exception of life for life, for murder, there's no evidence that this was intended to be carried out literally as one bodily mutilation for another. You know, that guy lost his hand, so you're going to lose your hand. Um, as fair as that sounds, it wasn't a necessary payment, or again, you'd have a lot of maimed people limping around. Verses 26 and 27 are, are proof of that. Mentioning an eye or a truth that's been destroyed um, and what should happen. The point is that the penalty for ruining someone else's eye or tooth or hand or foot should be such that it would hurt as if that person's own body were being ruined. This would be up to the judges to decide in the land. It could be banishment, it could be a loss of property, more fines, forms of humiliation, um, and so forth. I mentioned verse 28 already. The examples in 28 through 32 show that, I mean, you can have complicated cases involving animals, but the proportion, equal justice. I mean, having an animal in this time period would be like owning an automobile today. They're everywhere. You have the you know, different accidents that go with them. The goal here is a moral symmetry, a system of justice that's effective for all the parties uh, involved. So as we apply this principle, I want you to think about how that phrase, eye for an eye, is typically used. Typically, it's a word of vengeance. He or she did this to me, so I'm going to do this to them. You have any experience with that? Like in your living room or the front yard during family time? Um, yeah, we, we hear this case law and we use it as an excuse, as a law of vengeance rather than a law of compensation as it's intended. So this, this tally in law, the, all the examples we see here, reiterate that we're responsible for damage caused, even if it may be unintentional. We know that motives matter, but if we lose control and someone else is, uh, is hurt, then there, there's an accountability there to God. Whether you meant it or not, you did it, and you should take responsibility. 
to make things right. Uh, In the New Testament, we find Jesus explaining the law to the people. People a lot like you, a lot like me, who have misrepresented or forgotten what the law requires altogether. The eye for an eye principle, it was still the same, about getting back at someone or getting, getting what's coming to us. But really it is about making things right when we've hurt someone else. You know, how often do we pull out an eye for an eye when we're the guilty party and need to make restitution? We hope it's applied by others, but rarely do we think about it as much in applying to ourselves. The word of Jesus in Matthew 5, which we've, we've already heard in our service, consistent with the Old Testament law, that we have hurt someone, when we're in the wrong, we do what justice requires. But if someone else has wronged us, we don't have to insist on strict justice. Jesus says the general principle is there. But life in me, what you hear from from me is that there is mercy. A generosity that supersedes the floor plan of the Old Testament case law. This is a generosity and mercy that Jesus shows us. That we can actually do what seems impossible. We can actually bear injustice because God the Father has so generous, been so generous to us in the Lord Jesus. He shows us mercy when, when moral symmetry would mean our absolute destruction. Jesus endured the greatest of injustice, the most disproportionate punishment that has ever been known. And speaking of Jesus, the suffering servant, Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, the shame and humiliation that Jesus endured. He carried a cross for our freedom, for our life in Him. And if such generosity and mercy has been extended to us, must we not extend this mercy to others? So we need to keep our relation, keep our relation to God in mind as we consider our relationship to others, our deliberations with others. And we understand and embrace God's mercy to us. It's going to move us, not in just a direction of fairness, but in the direction of mercy. Only when we see God loving us in our hatred towards Him, can we begin to show mercy. Love those who have hurt us, have not loved us in return. Luke's Gospel we hear, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's go to the table, which so powerfully shows us that mercy. Lord God, we do thank You that You have extended such great mercy to us. That the justice that should be meted out to us was laid upon Christ. Now we can show mercy.
And we can extend love even when we have not been loved in return. Lord, we can only do this because of your love for us. Impress that upon our hearts. Work it deep, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.